Hello and welcome to episode 9 of Raptor Rambles and yes, it's me again, Jimmy Hill from Raptor Aid hosting another fantastic chat with this week's guest, Dr. Sonia Kruger based out in South Africa and Sonia is the go-to person really when it comes to learning all about well my favorite vulture it has to be said the bearded vulture now Sonia's an ecologist and she has been studying and working on bearded vultures for a number of years and in this chat we're going to find all or out all about the work that she's done with this incredible species and about its status now some of you in the past may have listened to the interview we did with Jose Tavares of the Vulture Conservation Foundation and heard about the fantastic work that they've been doing with the bearded vulture across its range in Europe but uh, and some of you may be uh, didn't realize that this this species is found in Africa and actually its range has, has shrank quite considerably across across South Africa um, and into North Africa as well and so it's it's really really interesting to hear what is happening to bearded vultures in and around the Drakensberg mountains where where Sonia monitors and and tries to study them as as best as possible and you'll you'll hear during the podcast and the chat just how difficult it is and how much time and energy and resources are required just to even get a basic grip of numbers and and how the birds are doing i've been fortunate enough to visit the drakensberg mountains and i have to admit it is definitely up there on one of the most incredible places that i've been to visit i've I've even been up to uh, lesotho as, as well the country of lesotho and i've been lucky enough to see in fact the only bearded vulture i've ever seen in the wild was whilst walking across the a plateau at the top of the drakensberg mountains uh towards lesotho it was it was pretty mind-blowing ex- experience so uh yeah and what what an incredible bird to see in a in in that habitat as well so we're going to bring you sonia in a moment just before i get on to that though uh what's going on with raptor aid well at the moment we are or i am uh getting into the swing of things with the raptor monitoring season so you'll see a bit more of that coming up over the coming certainly weeks and months as long as covid lockdown continues to ease we'll be getting out and about so recently we've started by monitoring an honorary raptor here in the uk the raven which is obviously a member of the the corvid family really rather than being a a bird of prey but we tend to class it as an honorary bird of prey because some of its uh some of its habits uh and also it tends to frequent uh quarries and and areas where we find other birds of prey like like peregrine falcons uh tawny owls they're another early breeder here in the uk so i've been busy helping with some audio recording and nest box checks as part of a project that we started a couple of years ago now uh, with the university of chester so that's starting to prove interesting and we're getting some results from that we've got i think four four pairs of tawny owls in active in nest boxes which is not a bad start so i'll be i'll be sharing some pictures uh, uh of of our exploits and getting out and monitoring those boxes and then obviously it rolls on and and we go into the season with peregrines and goshawks and trips up to scotland are already being planned uh, to monitor ospreys again and, and work with with the highland raptor study group so there's yeah there's there's lots of exciting things planned in terms of raptor aid and what we've been doing as a charity other than the raptor monitoring well obviously it's been very quiet in terms of the the educational side of things we can do we we have planned on doing a peregrine watch again in chester this year but unfortunately i think we're uh we're gonna pull the plug on that idea just for this year i think it's just for the, for the best that we we uh we we're not going to be able to offer that this year but we will continue to to monitor the the progress of the peregrines and we're really pleased to see that the camera 
all, although it's not a live feed, is is still working at the top of the shot tower, so we can we can get some idea of of what the peregrines are doing in in my home city of Chester, and and so I'm pleased to say they're on four eggs at the moment. They're incubating four eggs, so that's that's good news. One of the things that I'm really proud of, and this is something that I'm I'm hoping to really push, and I think it's really the route that we're going to take with Raptor Aid, is being able to offer grants for people and and you may remember that that I the last interview was with David Anderson of the Peregrine Fund and Canopy Watch well I'm really pleased to say they are well ahead of schedule in terms of fundraising and getting everything ready for their their week-long training for biologists in in how to access the canopy and I'm even more excited to tell you and i'll be sharing it on social media that we have donated raptor aid has donated 500 pounds and that's been split into two scholarships uh called discover raptor scholarship um, as part of the discover canopy uh training week and they've picked two fantastic candidates um that are gonna gonna be taking part in that week-long training uh off the back of of of, uh the donation that raptor aids made and i've i've just recently read uh an initial uh, feedback from the the two chaps that have been uh, and received the scholarships and and it's quite humbling to to know that you anyone who's donated to Raptor Aid and supported the work that we do um, has has made a difference to to the careers essentially of these two raptor biologists in South America and as I say I'll share lots of information about that so if you have donated thank you very much and uh, yeah in in the future this is definitely something that I would love to to pursue further with Raptor Aid, creating more grants and fundraising and and any donations that we receive are then put towards these grants to support bird of prey based projects, community projects, individuals wanting to to further their education and their knowledge when it comes to bird of prey conservation. Uh, that's definitely something that, that we're all about at Raptor Aid. So, so the, uh, the wheels are in motion and uh, yeah, I'm busy writing down lots of ideas and, and putting things to the other trustees to, to see what we can... Uh, we can come up with anyway that's enough of me rambling on about the going on a raptor aid keep an eye on social media as always i'll i know i'm not great at it but i'll try and update you as much as i can we have got a very exciting fundraiser coming up in the next two weeks so keep an eye on social media for that that'll be alongside our friends at the philippine eagle foundation but in the meantime i hope you're all safe and well uh sit back and enjoy episode nine of raptor rambles with dr sonia kruger talking about her work with the bearded vulture welcome everyone i think we're on episode nine of raptor rambles and i am pleased to be joined by sonia kruger who is an ecologist based out in South Africa. And Sonia, well, I won't say too much about uh, what Sonia does because that's that's her job in the in this podcast. But uh, but she she monitors one one particular species that I'm very very interested in. Uh, in fact, it's probably one of my favourites. You're not supposed to have favourites, but but there we go. Um, so Sonia, welcome. Thank you for joining me. Sorry, I just reconnected. <laughs> No, don't worry. I saw you'd froze there slightly, so it's all, it's all right. I said all I did was welcome you. So thank you for joining us. I know, I know, data and and signal might be a bit tricky. Um, so anyway, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Well, thanks very much, and great to chat to you this morning. So, I, I people will get bored of me with this. Anyone who listens to this podcast at Great Lane, I always start the same way and and ask the individual that I'm chatting to to tell us a bit about how they how they got into nature, birds of prey, and and leading on to the career that that they uh, they often end up in. Um, so, yeah, I'll I'll ask the same to you. How did it How did it all begin? Where did it all begin? Yeah, I've been involved in. Uh, bearded vulture research and monitoring for the past 20 years but I'm by no means an ornithologist I'm actually an ecologist and started my research on wild dogs in fact which are also a critically endangered species and 
when I started my ecologist post in the Drakensberg Mountains in South Africa, in the Okathamba Drakensberg Park, which is uh, where I'm working or where I'm based, when I started in the park, I saw that the park logo had a bearded vulture on it. And I was starting to ask the, the colleagues and the rangers how many birds we had, you know, where they were nesting, how the numbers were doing. It was also an endangered species. So, yeah, I was quite curious to, to know their numbers. And funnily enough, no one really knew. There had been quite a lot of work done in the 80s by Christopher Brown for his PhD thesis. But then since then, no one had really done any monitoring. And, yeah, I was quite curious to know how many birds we had or how many pairs we had breeding in the park. And that's really where it all started. Um, so in 2000, we started some surveys and realized that there were quite quite a few less pairs than, than we thought or we would have expected. And yeah, it all kind of snowballed from there. So how, where, um, where, did the, where did the passion all begin? Obviously, because you're, you're, you're native, obviously, to, to South Africa, I assume you are. So where did, where did, that all, where did it all begin? Where, where was the spark? Sure. I guess, yeah, just growing up, we always used to go camping in wild places and nature reserves and as far away from anywhere as possible. So I guess it all started there. And I really just wanted to be in nature, work with animals. You know, the, the usual notion of being a the romantic notion of being a game ranger and, and went to university, which probably wasn't the best thing to get, do for a game ranger. And yeah, got into science rather than the actual management, but uh, working in his as an ecologist now, I'm in an ecological advice division. So basically, we work very closely with our managers and advise them on various management practices. Bearded vultures—that—that's a species that you—is that primary? That's your primary focus. Is is bearded vultures in the Drakensberg Mountain Range? Is that right? Well, as an ecologist, I'm basically a, a generalist, a master of everything. <laughs> yeah. Well. Uh, let me change that. Definitely not a, a jack of all trades, not a master of anything. But <laughs> bearded vultures have been the focus for the last 20 years and being a critically endangered species now. And also considering the plight of African vultures, it certainly has been a, a large part of my work program for the last few years. Yes. Brilliant. I am. Um, I've got a little story that I don't know if I mentioned it in an email to you. I, I might not have. I've been. I consider I've been lucky enough to go to visit Africa, South Africa twice. I think now two or three times. Um, and one of the trips was. I won't tell you the whole story because it'll bore you senseless. And um, uh, but I, I ended up in the Drakensberg Mountains and saw a bearded vulture. I, we went up onto the the, the top. Um, and we walked across the, was it, is it called the, I forget now, I'm rubbish with names, 12 Apostles or something like that? That's right, yes. So we, we walked across somewhere, somewhere in that area. Um, yeah, and a bearded vulture, an adult, um, flew at eye level um, to us just off, off the end of the, the face of the rock. And, well, I could have done, I mean, the, 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 the scenery and the location was just out of this world anyway. So then to turn and see an adult bearded vulture floating in front of us was, was incredible. Um, yeah. Something I'll, I'll never forget. And then to top it all off, we walked and I didn't realize this at the time, but there's a pub at the top as well. Um, so we went for a beer, which was even, <laughs> so it was even better, but, but interestingly, while, I, because I, out there working um, on this, um, this, well, it was a TV production. Um, I got to meet Professor Stephen Piper as well, um, which was a re which was a, re a real treat as well. And um, yeah, it was it was fantastic to 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 meet him as well. So I I have been lucky enough to experience it, and I've always said that the Drakensberg Mountains is somewhere that I would love to go back to because it's just for me it was out of this world. It was be beautiful. Um, so so yeah, I'm. Yeah. I'm Working on the species for the last oh, 20 odd years, um, I never cease to be amazed when seeing a bird. You just realize each time anew how big they are and how incredible they are, yeah. especially if they fly close over you. You can actually hear their wings um, sort of singing in the wind. It's an incredible experience. Yeah. And they're always very curious when, you, when you're hiking. You know, they'll come out and have a, a good look at you. And I guess they realize there's no threat if, if they're above you and... Yeah, it's, it's just amazing seeing them up close and great that they are that curious and come that close. 
Yeah. And also, they don't, they're not easy to catch, um, mind you. So they're very tricky when, when you're actually wanting to see them and catch them. But yeah. <laughs> it's yeah, always an amazing experience to see them up close. So if we go, if we rewind 20 years ago, then when you when you first embarked on or started working on the on the bearded vultures in the region, what what was known and what what wasn't known? What were the sort of questions that you needed to answer um, to begin with? Well, basically, we had a handful of nests that we knew the location of, and there had been some surveys, as I mentioned, in in the 80s. And then they had done a helicopter survey with the Defence Force at the time, the Air Force. Uh, they'd done a survey of the entire escarpment um, down into the Eastern Cape province, as well as north of the KwaZulu-Natal province that we're in. Uh, north of the province is the Free State province. So they flew the entire escarpment to look for nests. And basically, we had a location of a lot of the nests that they found at the time. Mm -hmm. And yeah, our main focus was to try and redo that survey and see how many of those birds were still present in those territories. So really, that's, that's where it started. And that's where we realized we certainly didn't have as many birds as they had previously recorded, which was then a cause for concern. And yeah, we didn't really know what the threats to the birds were. So previously, poisoning had been pointed out as an issue and collisions with power lines. But we wanted more. Yeah, we wanted to know whether those still were issues or if there were any other reasons or causes of death for the birds. So that's basically where the, the research and the continued monitoring started. So I know this is probably quite a, um, I don't know, not, not very detailed question, but, but uh, it, so if you can think back to, obviously 20 years ago what what sort of numbers after your first sur surveys that you carried out what sort of numbers were you did you find compared to what was what was known um from the 80s the population in the 80s was estimated to be around about 600 individuals mm -hmm. but that includes um the lesotho side as well as the south african side that's the entire population in southern africa mm -hmm. so our population the numbers we were getting were significantly lower than that and yeah probably only about half half that amount so we started uh, doing a population viability analysis in 2006 just to try and get all the experts together and model what the population trajectory was and yeah that's where we realized that that we had quite a serious problem with the information that we did have and that started a lot of research into the causes of death and looking into more detail how many territories we actually had and their movement ecology as well and looking at the genetics of the population so if they did go extinct you know where could we look to to start reintroducing new birds so yeah so the i don't think it is as dire as we thought it was now that we have more information but certainly the population is yeah we're not looking at anything more than between three and four hundred birds so it's definitely significant less, significantly less than it, it was. And their range has definitely decreased significantly as well. When they used to occur all the way down to Cape Town, to basically the tip of Southern Africa. And certainly in the last century, that, that hasn't been the case. They, they have died out in that area. And if we did have to look back into that area to try and reintroduce into the historic range, we'd need to make sure that those threats weren't still present in, in that range. Uh, and now I feel like I'm kind of unconscious. I always, I always do this when I'm talking to people because I'm, because I know what a bearded vulture is or, or whatever the species is. I probably should mention to people that, and, and Sonia can go into more detail. Bearded vultures, they're massive, aren't they? This isn't, you know, if anyone listening who hasn't seen a, seen a bearded vulture, um, in, in on the computer or if you've been lucky to see them in real life because they're obviously their range of we're talking about them in in africa but they're found across the alps and, and across sorry europe as well um they're, they're one of the biggest vultures in the world aren't they in, in terms of size and um, what what sort of size do they get to um wing span just to give people who don't really know what we're talking about an idea so, yeah, the wingspan is certainly huge. It's, it would be the, the biggest of certainly the African vultures, uh, two and a half meters roundabout. Um, and the bird stands about a meter high off, off the ground. So that is, it's a significant size. We do have another cliff nesting vulture, the Cape vulture. Um, and that's quite a bit bigger than the bearded vulture, but in terms of not, not in terms of the wingspan, just in terms of body size. 
But the bearded vulture is about a six kilogram bird. So it's, yeah, it's certainly significant in terms of the vultures. And funnily enough, it looks more like an eagle than a vulture. So it's not your typical vulture that, that everyone's familiar with, which well, certainly in my mind makes them the most attractive vulture. In my <laughs> I mean, yeah, they are beautiful. That's probably one of the reasons I'm I'm drawn to them because they are the beautiful, beautiful birds. Um, yeah, they uh, they have that diamond shaped tail, don't they? So, um, and I, I know, um, yeah, a friend who works has worked with one in captivity before now says when when that they they flew um, that watching them in in flight is incredible the way they can maneuver for such a large bird. Um, so, so yeah, um, they're big birds. But if anyone's not seen one, then you you need to go. Yeah, just jump on Google and and see see what we're talking about. Um, now, you you mentioned obviously some of the the impacts on on the population. And did you have you? We, we'll we'll try and cover them in a bit more detail. But did you find anything else what that that's impacting the the population um, or your population? Uh, yes, since. Uh... Since about 2007, uh, we put satellite transmitters on about 25 individuals in the population between 2007 and 2012, uh, in a range of ages and, and both males and females. And within the first couple of years, we had quite a number of birds dying. And overall, we've only actually got two birds left that are still flying around with transmitters at the moment. But basically, more than half of those birds were poisoned, uh, died of poison. There was only one that we found that had collided with power lines, but the rest were all poisoning and uh, lead poison as well to some extent. So we did test the blood of the birds that we caught, um, the live birds. We took blood and tested that, as well as the bones of the birds that had died. And the bones showed that they had been exposed to lead. And... In bones, basically, it shows the accumulation of lead over time, whereas blood just shows what they've been exposed to recently. Mm -hmm. So it was quite a concern that, that they are accumulating lead in their bones, which means they are exposed to lead in the environment, which is compromising them. That may not kill them directly, but it would make them more susceptible to things like flying into power lines. They might not be able to react as quickly as they would. Yeah. So that's definitely a concern for us. And... Right around the world, it has been shown that uh, lead ammunition or is, is probably the primary cause of, of that. It's been found in vultures elsewhere as well in, in Europe. So, yeah, certainly a, a concern. Well, yeah, and of course, I mean, I don't think I've spoke to someone yet regarding you, you, you. If you go over to America, the Californian condor, of course, which was nearly pushed to extinction, mainly by the single fact of, of yeah, ingesting spent lead from carcasses so uh so it's a serious effect funnily enough we've got a we've got a, there's a big push at the moment here uh, in the uk from conservationists because because people are still allowed to use lead shots when they're when they're out shooting um and yeah and well my opinion is it's crazy that you know you still still use lead shot but but there, there we go there's there's lots of people that are for and against it um here so that, poisoning itself is is our largest problem. Uh, the birds are feeding mainly on predator baits, so baits that have been put out for predators like jackal, mm -hmm. and the birds are, are basically as affected by secondary poisoning, so the bait isn't meant for them, but they are picking up those baits and, and dying from those. And there is, of course, um, in both South Africa and Lesotho, there's a traditional medicine trade which does favor vultures, and vultures have certain unique capabilities that no other species has so there's definitely poisoning specifically for that uh, trade as well so people are catching them poisoning them shooting them we did have one of our birds shot as well so it definitely it definitely is an Im impact so in turn with with this just touching sort of on that with, with the the satellite tagging what sort of range are you finding these these birds are, are moving about in um what sort of movements, distances? So, interestingly enough, the adults stay really close to their nest, within 10 kilometers of their nest nice. right throughout the year. So, it's a really small range, and they pretty much hang around in their territories and seem to find enough food in those territories. 
but the immature birds they range across the entire species range so right across um the Sutu, south africa and yeah we're looking at about 300 kilometers at least in terms of that that range and the older the birds get the more they explore the area so the, as they fledge they they just spend a lot of time really close to the adult home range and then as they age sort of between three, four, five years, the range just gets bigger and bigger before they settle down and find their own territories. Yeah. So, so that makes them the most, I suppose, the most at risk because they're covering such large areas. So it's really difficult to try and mitigate threats in those areas because you just don't know where to start really. Whereas adults, you could protect whatever's in their territory, but for the, the non-adults, you're looking at the rest of the range basically. Yeah, and I suppose that makes it obviously that makes it harder for the species in terms of range expansion and and moving into well filling gaps and moving into new territories and and uh, I suppose again just to point out and Sonia you can jump in and um, confirm some of these uh, for people that are probably unaware of of um, the ecology of certainly the bigger bigger birds of prey or, or vultures like that the, the long lived species aren't they so. So when you take out, you know, juveniles and subadults, then it and it has a big impact on on um, on the population, doesn't it? Absolutely. But we also found that a lot of our adults uh, were killed as well. Uh, so, which is unusual for a predator of of when an apex predator is to have a high mortality rate for adults. So that is certainly driving the population decline as well. So we found they had really low productivity. So basically they were only producing one young per pair every second year, whereas they were thought to breed every year. So that for us was also of a major concern. And my feeling is that's because one of the adults is actually dying in the middle of the breeding season and that's why they're not, they're not producing. So it wasn't so much the productivity that was the problem, it was the mortality of the adults. Um, but that is something we need to still go into more detail on is to look at productivity and see at what stage um, the the breeding success is failing essentially. Do you um do you inter with with your because you obviously are aware of where pairs are breeding, do you get to know individual birds then in, in the sense that you can um even if they're not marked, can you can you understand basic things like they're both adult birds or or have you, do you find that if if an adult goes missing it's a sub-adult that's coming in and, and what's making me think this is one of the things hen harriers are a hot topic here in the uk again and a, a study was recently completed with camera traps on nests and they were finding that that a large number of adults were being killed or males in particular away from the nest and it was actually then it was sub-adult birds that were coming into the nest and that was that was hindering productivity because you've got a new male that's less experienced at provisioning and, and so on and so forth do you have, have you come across anything like that with the bearded vultures so we've had a couple of um, nests that we monitored following the death of of one of the tracked individuals and it normally has taken at least one season before that um, the mate is replaced. Mm -hmm. So there don't seem to be a lot of free-flying or non-breeding adults in the population. But we are aware of one or two pairs that have a, a third individual helping, but yeah, literally only a handful. So there don't seem to be a lot of non-breeding adults in the population. It, it does take a while to, to replace the adult. But most of our nests take many, many hours to walk to. So it's, it's, we don't have such a as good a handle as we would like on, on those nests and whether that individual is different to, to the next one or whether it has been replaced, you know, if it's not a tracked individual that we're aware of. So we wouldn't be able to tell the difference between the individuals. And also males and females look the same as well. So they're not... Uh, sexually dimorphic so that also makes it even more difficult especially to the untrained eye so most of the feet on the ground are our rangers that are out patrolling on a on a daily basis and yeah they they said they have a whole host of other tasks biological monitoring law enforcement so bearded vultures are just one of the things that they monitor and they don't they're not that familiar with all the pairs they certainly know where the nests are but not 
the individuals at, at each nest. So that makes it really tricky. And trying to monitor across the entire range when some of the areas are really difficult to access, we, we just certainly don't have as good a handle on individuals in the population. We focus on the on the territories, not so much on the individuals. Yeah, yeah. No, that's fair enough. Yeah. Yeah, I know I've seen um I think I've seen some of the, the work you you do and, and we'll probably come on to um some of the, the projects or the, the the direct um actions you're taking. But yeah, using ho- horseback and stuff like that and Land Rovers to and and then of course there's the trekking on foot miles and miles and hours and hours just to get to, to one site. So I'm yeah and and like you say I suppose resource wise bearded vultures as as lovely as they are and as charismatic and and endangered i suppose they're just one species aren't they so you you can't you can't um you've got to spread the load a bit and you can't expect it all to be focused we're such a small group of people um i really envy the europeans they've got every single territory monitored on a regular basis several times a year whereas we've got a, a tiny group of people trying to cover 300 territories so we don't even get to monitor a third of those territories every year. And a lot of them only get monitored because we're able to do aerial surveys. So it's just such inaccessible areas and so few people to actually do the work. That's or so few trained people as well, and especially in, in Lesotho, just to get into another country to do monitoring or try and train up the locals to do monitoring. You know, that's taking up quite a lot of our time just to get more and more people involved. Just on, on that subject, then, how um, how keen are um, locals and, and and people working on the in the areas where, where these territories are? How how keen are they to be engaged in? Because you obviously you mentioned that one of the the, the main conflicts is is um, eating poison baits, and obviously it's indirect because the the target is jackals and and other predatory species. How how keen are people to to be engaged and, and work towards helping the bearded vulture in these different regions? Oh, it's generally very positive. Um, there is still some perception that they kill lambs. So that is something we still do need to address in parts of the range. But for the most part, uh, people do understand that they're not predators, they are scavengers and are, are quite supportive. And certainly on the South African side, we have a lot of supplementary feeding sites where farmers put out carcasses for the vultures, which obviously benefits the farmers in that they're getting rid of their carcasses and the vultures come and and clean them up. But it obviously helps the vultures as well in terms of just providing that food in uh, times of the year when they need it to get into breeding condition or to help fledglings be more successful once they've uh, fledged from the nest. So that, that is yeah, one aspect that we do encourage is feeding sites. And people are generally very positive to have vultures on their property. The only problem with a supplementary feeding site, it does encourage jackal to come and feed at the same, same site because you're providing a lot of yeah. easy food for them. So that, that is a, that's the, the disadvantage. Yeah, and I suppose it's something we've, an important factor that, that we haven't really mentioned is the di- the diet of the bearded vulture. Again, for people that are not familiar with the species, so this is is and and tell me if I'm wrong with 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 some of this, but they're obviously specialist in the sense that they um they they largely feed on bones don't they so when people think of vultures they probably they probably look at the the sort of jungle book sort of image of these bald-headed long-necked you know reaching into carcasses and and you know eating meat and um innards and all the rest of the gory details but but bearded vultures specialize in in feeding on bones and marrow don't they that's right so i I think a lot of people don't realize that and they do still think they're predators because they I mean, it's a huge bird and they've got quite large claws as well. They do look quite dangerous. And, and if once people realize that they do only eat bones, they really don't pose a threat to themselves or to their, to their livestock, then you know, the attitude definitely changes. Yeah. We did confiscate one uh, bearded vulture that was being kept by a traditional leader illegally uh, in Lesotho a number of years ago. And the veterinarian needed to check the bird before we 
took it across the border and they opened the, the crate and they just literally saw the claws and they got such a fright and they just said, oh, no, no, this, this bird looks fine to me. <laughs> they, they just didn't want to get any, any closer to it. They were just so scared. But uh, yeah, it is a huge bird, but it really, it's, it's quite a docile bird as far as vultures con are concerned, which is quite fortunate for those of us that have been working on them and, and trying to trap them to put the transmitters on. It's, it's nice that they don't um, vomit all over you like the other vultures or, or bite at any given opportunity. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I know. I've, I've I've worked with some species in captivity, and yeah, biting and vomiting, yeah, goes I suppose goes in ha hand in hand. Yeah, with um uh, with them. Endear them to you, no. <laughs> what um? So the current the this I'm just trying to think. We're just here in the UK. We're just entering spring, and, and well, spring has sprung pretty much, and and summer um is is just around the corner. Hopefully, what what point are you at in the breeding season for the for the bearded vultures that you monitor? So it's yeah, start, uh, beginning of autumn for us now, where the birds are starting to prepare their nests. So they. As I said, they are always in their territories, but they're a little bit more active on the nest now bringing, maybe I should just explain what the nest looks like first. It's a really large um, stick nest in a pothole in, in the mountains, generally at at least uh, 2,000 meters above sea level. So anything from 1,800 to over 3,000 um, on the basalt cliffs in our case. And they, they can be quite deep potholes. So that makes it really tricky to see them as well when you're monitoring you really just see them flying into the pothole and out, and then you need to make a decision based on that. So we don't have the luxury of, of seeing what's happening inside the pothole. But the nest is really large, and they add sticks to it every single year. So it can often sort of extend all the way to the ceiling of the pothole that the bird almost has no space to sit once it's, once it's on the nest. Yeah. And then they bring as much material and lamb's wool and pieces of blanket and even plastic and all sorts of things they can find in the environment to line that nest and make it nice and warm and cozy. So that generally starts happening, happening now. And then they lay the eggs to late May, beginning of June. And then it's about 60 days before those eggs hatch. So two months and then come August, September, we start seeing a lot of activity around the nest when the parents start feeding that chick in the first few days. Fantastic. Yeah, just the pitch is wonderful. Of course, yeah, again, people need to, anyone listening to this who's unsure, I've, I've again, only seen it via, via the internet, but the nests are quite something. They, they, I mean, obviously it is a big bird, but yeah, you're talking about the lining. So they bring all sorts in, don't they? I suppose it comes back to the, it, they're, they're quite an early breeder. Certainly if I think about what I know about the, the European um birds they're, they're they're really early breeders in in when we think of we normally here in the uk on the western world we think of you know obviously springtime you know bird, birds start breeding warm weather but obviously bearded vultures are certainly in the in the alps and some parts of of europe are doing it in almost like the depths of winter really um so that that lambs will probably goes a long way in a nest for keeping your your feet and your eggs and your bottom warm <laughs> doesn't go a long way to helping us that are monitoring the birds at that time of the year. No, absolutely. <laughs> That's always the worst time of the year to be out camping and, and looking for these birds. And often you just can't get into the area if there has been deep snow the night before. Yeah. I mean, we do get snow in winter. It's not certainly not as much as, as Europe and that doesn't stay for very long, but it can certainly hamper, hamper activities for a few days at a time. Well, I've I've experienced it firsthand here in the UK monitoring golden eagles, and that not their early starters really. So they start displaying and and around territories in February. So when you're in the Highlands of Scotland in February, sat for six to eight hours on the site, you know, in a, watching at long distance, and you don't see anything, it's pretty miserable. It's a pretty miserable affair. So I feel for you. I cannot completely understand what bearded vulture watches go through as well, <laughs> and it's probably. I always think this is probably why you sometimes struggle to get people to volunteer and get involved in this sort of work because yeah, they, yeah, most people in my experience see the, the interesting bit of maybe in your case, trapping an adult and fitting GPS tags, but really that's just the, that's just the tip of the iceberg, isn't it? There's, there's so much hard work that goes in. That's not so glamorous. Um, yeah. 
Absolutely. I mean, certainly from the monitoring point of view and also to try and find the satellite tags when they drop off. They certainly never drop off in an open grassland field that you can just drive up to. We've had to fly helicopters to some of um, some of the sites to look for these, and then they could be in quite deep ravines or at the bottom of cliffs, and the signal bounces off all the surrounding cliffs. So really difficult to to find the transmitters, and of course they're really small and camouflaged in colour. So yeah. again, if they're not attached to the bird school, they're incredibly difficult to find. But just the, the monitoring of the, the species, I mean, it takes several hours to get to a site and you're usually carrying your backpack for a, a few days with tent and sleeping bag and food and then your telescope and your tripod, which adds a couple of extra kilos, which you normally wouldn't have if you were just going hiking. So every time I give a talk, people want to get involved and really sound quite keen, but then <laughs> once they've done one trip or seen what's involved in a trip, then that's the last you see of them. So it's... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, hard, hard work. Now, in, in terms of, um, we should just talk about the eggs. You you mentioned obviously um, they lay they lay two eggs, do they? Is that's that, right. That's yes. right. And do um, just for people tuning in, um, do both eggs hatch, or is it often? I know, obviously, you said you struggle to to look into the nests, and but do you find? I know reading about certain eagle species often only one egg hatches or or um, two eggs hatch and one chick kills the other chick what what tends to occur with bearded vultures that you know of anyway so yes we implemented a breeding program which we can talk about just now um, about five years ago so that's certainly given us more insight into what's happening in the nest itself so yeah as i said we don't really get to see in most of them so it's difficult to know what's happening but uh, the species as a whole lays two eggs. Both of them are generally fertile eggs um, and both will hatch. And then they practice what's called canism behavior. So only one of the chicks will actually survive and be reared by the adults. Uh, so we don't often find eggshells or the remains of the other chick either in the nest. Um, you just see the, the one chick. But uh, both of them have to be fertile because if the one doesn't hatch, the second one is, is basically going to be the chick of the year. So they both of them are viable options, essentially, and it's, it's just an insurance policy in case the first one doesn't hatch. But what we have found now that we have access to few nests is that most of the birds are actually laying two eggs, which is not normally the case in Europe either. They found that quite a few of them only have single clutches. Uh, but about more than 70% of ours are laying two eggs. Uh, but often the, the egg, second egg has been infertile because we, in, a, in the harvesting program for the breeding of the birds, we are collecting the second egg, which is normally the redundant uh, egg. So we're taking that so as not to impact on the population. And we are finding that uh, quite a number of those second eggs are actually infertile. Which, which is unusual. Well, not unusual, again, compared to, to the, the rest of the other popula global populations, but it is quite a big surprise for us and makes our life more difficult for, from a captive breeding perspective, if only half of those, for example, that we collect are actually fertile and will hatch. So just to the the project you're talking about, just to, it'd be good, obviously, to highlight that. That's the bread for the bread for the wild project. Is that right? That you. That's you right. Yes. So it's the bearded vulture breeding program. Yes, which falls under the bearded vulture recovery program, and the focus there was to start collecting birds. We didn't have any in captivity apart from the one I mentioned um, that was confiscated a couple mm -hmm. of years ago. So that was the only bird we had in captivity. So we didn't have the luxury of a number of birds in zoos like they did in Europe to be able to breed and produce young to then potentially release in the wild. So to start a, a captive bred population, we needed to either catch birds in the wild or take the second eggs. And yeah, we chose the latter option because it has the lowest impact on the, or we assumed it would have the lowest impact on the wild population. So taking uh, the second eggs over the last basically five years, uh, for the, that's what Bread for the Wild has been doing, and that has given us the insight to what's been happening in those nests. But the idea was to form an insurance population, so in case our population did go extinct in the wild, which uh, looking at it, it does have a negative population growth, so there is, is a good chance of that in the next 50 to 100 years. 
that we could uh, sort of an extinction problem. Uh, so the insurance was one thing, but then also breeding uh, those birds to become a potential founder population to start breeding birds for reintroduction. So those were the two reasons we started the program. And the first year obviously was just a trial of all the methods. Um, they've all been trialed in, in Europe. So it was a matter of trying to follow similar protocols to what they've done already. And yeah, it's, it's been a, a slow program with uh, very little funding. So the results aren't what we expected or hoped. Uh, and we've had various challenges with weather. And obviously last year, the, the COVID pandemic also prevented a lot of, of travel and cross-border activities. So we do need to work in both countries. So that certainly did hamper some activities. But we have about, yeah, we have seven individuals in captivity at the moment that will form part of our founder population. Fantastic, fantastic. Yeah, well, and, and obviously just accessing sites, I suppose, like you say, it's it's all the all, all the man hours or, or, or hours that have to be put in the field just to find an active nest to then, you know, fingers crossed there's two eggs. And then obviously the hope that the second egg is viable and, and it is fertile. Um, yeah, I can imagine that's a, that's a, yeah, a, a difficult task. Um full stop but i i love i have to admit i do love following it on i think instagram it's and out when when i when i put this this interview up i'll i'll put some links to to um the individual one so uh so yeah but uh, um uh, uh, well fingers crossed and yeah all, all the best with with that so in terms of you you mentioned there about it being sort of a negative at the moment. How how do you see it progressing with with the bearded vulture over the next 10, 15 years, or, or and longer really for the species? Well, the biggest impact we need to make is to address poisoning uh, in the wild. where where they may be poisoned or they're going to they're going to die. We're certainly really worried about wind farms in, in the range of the species. So there has been some modeling that's been done and has shown that yeah, wind farms will be detrimental to the population. Because obviously these birds are ridge soarers, so they're using the same areas that wind farm developers like to put their, their turbines. So there's a major uh, problem in that we had, don't have any in the range yet. We've had one or two applications, uh, and luckily those haven't been constructed. But it's, it's certainly a, a threat in the future. So we, we do need to be very cognizant of that. But addressing poison for now is, is our biggest challenge. We do have a good relationship with the electricity company in South Africa at the moment. And in terms of power line collisions and electrocutions for other vultures, so they are addressing lines where we do have problems. Obviously, it interrupts the power supply. So it's in their best interest too. Yeah to address that, but also from a bird perspective, if you're losing endangered species, yeah, they, they do mitigate those with raptor protection devices or with flappers or whatever the latest technology is. And they're also working with the electricity company in Lesotho to try and uh, empower them as well and address some of the collisions in, in that country as well for, and also for proposed power lines. So that relationship exists and that obviously needs to be strengthened. You obviously don't find all the birds that do collide with power lines. So I think it's very underreported just because of the inaccessible terrain. And often a scavenger might take that, that bird before anyone finds it. So I think it is underreported in terms of the number of collisions we do have with power lines. And power lines certainly in the suit are also very prolific with the, they've got a number of dam developments for hydropower. So mm -hmm. there's obviously all the power lines that are associated with that. And then any power lines associated with proposed wind farms would also be of concern. Mm, yeah, lots, of, <laughs> lots to get, lots to get on with. Um, so when does when when do when do you pack your bag? When when is the rucksack and the tent and the telescope on your back? Then when do you when are you back out into the field, or do you do you tend to delegate now? I assume you you enjoy being out in the field, despite how the hard work we've discussed. I do once I'm on top of the mountain looking at the view, but on the way up, I'm cursing why I didn't study seagulls. But <laughs> it's definitely always worth it when you get to, um, we, we don't go right up as close to the nest as, as we can. We get to the contour path below, 
below the nest and then we see enough with telescopes, which is, is quite sufficient. But just the view you have from up there is incredible. So I think they certainly have a, this one of the species with the best view from their, their bedroom windows, basically. Yeah. And they build their nests that they protected from the wind. So they don't certainly don't experience the cold as much as, as they could. Yeah. Mm. So yeah, that's it's it's imminent. We start monitoring at the beginning of the breeding season to see if the birds do actually start um, breeding activity. And then we try and monitor them in the middle of the season to see if, if they have got a, a chick that's hatched and then at the end of the season to see how successful the attempt was. So mm -hmm. possible we try and monitor sites two to three times, but uh, at the very least we'll monitor once during the generally in September, which is early spring when there's the most food around and when the chicks are born. And that's when you see most of the activity of the nest. Both parents are, are flying backwards and forwards constantly to feed their chick. And for the more inexperienced monitors, it's the best time to see the birds and, and then yeah. know, know what's happening. But for the breeding program to be able to harvest second eggs, we need to start monitoring a lot earlier just to see which birds have actually started breeding activity at their territories. Which is always a challenge because even though they've started that activity, it might not mean that when they're ready to harvest the egg that that activity actually continues. So... We have had one or two occasions where there's been no more activity at the site, which is then a huge waste of, of time and yeah, other resources. So it's, uh, that's one of the unfortunate um, realities. And yeah, but just having few feet on the ground to do the detailed monitoring that that's needed. But ideally, we like to get an idea of breeding success and also to try and find out if there are problems where in the stage of the breeding that, that those problems take place? Is it the egg hatching stage or is it the fledging stage, for example? And uh, I, I suppose you mentioned, we, well, well, we can't not mention it, uh, COVID and the impact that's had. What is, is, is the plan, obviously, for the Bread for the Wild team or the, that that's part of the, the work to go forward this year? Is, is that looking hopeful that you're going to try and get to some nest and harvest some eggs? Yes, it is looking hopeful. I mean, certainly on the South African side, there shouldn't be a hindrance. And we're looking at various funding sources to fund that. Unfortunately, on the South African side, most of the access is via helicopters because we, um, the Drakensberg escarpment is where most of the sites are. There's very few that are off the escarpment. So there's no road access to most of those sites. Right. And even though you can walk to them and then climb down to collect the egg, you still need to get that egg to an incubator quite quickly. So, you know, we can't afford to ride on horseback or, or yeah. drive for many hours. So on the South African side, certainly a helicopter is the, the desired option, which is obviously a really expensive option. Mm. But on the Lesotho side, there are a number of roads that go relatively close to the sites, and the sites are a little bit more accessible in terms of climbing than the South African side. So, but uh, the access, although you do need COVID tests at the moment to get in and out, um, they quick test, so it sounds like it's, it is reasonable to assume we will be able to access uh, Lesotho this year to do some harvesting, yes. Oh, brilliant. Good. Excellent. Yeah. It's funny, actually. I think it was, I think I may have, I may have messaged um, in the past Shannon about, uh, Shannon Hoffman about um, sort of support with the project. And she mentioned about portable incubators. Yes. About, you know, getting hold of some, some portable incubators. So um, maybe if, if anyone listening to this is, is uh, yeah, thinking, I really want to help bearded vultures in South Africa, then there you go. You need to uh, buy them a portable incubator or, or some a telescope or something, something like that. that. I'm sure that'd be what, what is there anything else that what I always get asked this um, and it's always a difficult one um to answer i think but what sort of is there any way people can support you and, and help you what, what sort of things might they be able to do yeah if people are remote uh so not in south africa for example in within the range then certainly from an equipment perspective that's that's definitely where they can help even just binoculars a lot of our monitors in the communal areas uh, in Lesotho, they just don't have binoculars to look at sites. So the trained monitors, we equip them with telescopes and tripods, but obviously they do need replacing over time or repairs. 
And yeah, many people just don't have binoculars to be able to see what's going on at the site. So to be able to monitor more sites would, would need more equipment uh, distributed across the range of the species. And definitely the incubator is, at the moment, the Bread for the Wild is borrowing an incubator, but it would be ideal to have one or two that they can use interchangeably during the breeding season and the harvesting, if they harvesting several sites on the same day. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, well, we'll, uh, we'll put our thinking caps on in the UK then. Maybe that's something that, that yeah, Raptor A can, uh, can, can push along. Talk, I mean, talking about technology, and, and you, you I know this has been been done i think in or you this this technology has been used in in south africa with with vultures but it's something actually i've i've started doing this year is is has there ever been any use with drones monitoring nest sites or has that been trialed with bearded vultures it has been trialed it certainly sounds a lot more exciting or possible than it really is uh most of the sites you to get close enough to actually fly the drone, you've done most of the work already, then you may as well just get your telescope out. Mm -hmm. So the drone will certainly be able to look into the nest and tell you what's happening in terms of the breeding activity. So there they're quite useful. But as I mentioned, the nests are really difficult to access. So you'll be lugging your drone for several uh, kilometers to get there first. But where there's road access, then it's definitely an option. Of course, the altitude is a, a big factor and the wind against some of those escarpment sites is, is definitely a factor for the drone as well. So it had to be either be a really good pilot or quite a stable drone. Yeah, yeah, because <laughs> they're, they're expensive bits of kit. I've only just started doing it this year to, using a, a drone, um, which was expensive enough. And um, yeah, one of the early breeders here in the UK, and it probably actually is similar to, to bearded vulture in the in the sense is ravens. And one of the things I found was actually you have to get quite a bit higher than this because ravens will nest. Some of them were in on cliff faces, and and again they have wall line nests that are very deep. So some of them were just impossible because there's an overhang off the rock as well. And the nest is at the back. You just couldn't, I just couldn't get high enough to get an image in for, we were trying to check clutch sizes of, of eggs. So, um, so yeah, I can imagine there's difficulties with that, but no, I was just interested to know whether, yeah, I know, I know drones have been used in the, in previously with, with vultures on cliff faces. So. There you go. Maybe you need an investment in a drone as well. But oh, I, I know from piloting, I wouldn't want to crash one of the expensive ones that you probably, <laughs> that you probably need for we that. We find the birds also hunker down on the nest as soon as there is, even from aerial surveys, once you fly yeah. past, they just either run to the back of the pothole or they just hunker down on the nest, in which case you don't see what's going on. You don't see anything, yeah. But at least you know it's probably incubating if it's, if it's stuck tight on its nest and hasn't flushed off the nest. So that at least is one good sign, yes. <laughs> well, nests, camera nests, obviously, nests inside cameras is ideal, but again, it's a security uh, a security factor. And also there's very few sites you can actually put a camera that you can easily access for maintenance. So we do have one camera that um, we, we're working on making those images available live as well over the internet so people can watch uh, the camera and the activity on the nest. But uh, we're getting some really good images from that camera, and it's in a protected area, so luckily it's it's more secure than than most cameras. And mm. even though the baboons do tend to get hold of aerials or solar panels and things like that, but we're getting some great images from that camera, and we do post them on our Project Vulture website, which we can we can give you those details as well. So just to you can track the activity of that pair at, at the nest, which is also really interesting to see what happens in the nest and there's some really great images that come through on a daily basis yeah def definitely um I'll, I'll put those i'll put those details up so people can have a look and is that the same with um just you men obviously going back to what we mentioned with the the um the satellite tagged that you've got two birds still can you still follow the the, the whereabouts or, or the activity of that those birds online do you still update Yes, I, I provide a weekly update of, of the latest movements, yes. So that's also on, on the Project Vulture website. Excellent. All right. Well, At I'm, the I'm, moment, we've got one bearded vulture and one cape vulture. So the bearded vulture was one that was caught in 2012. So that's actually uh, a bird that started breeding last year for the first time, which was really exciting to be able to, to find that nest. It took two years to find the nest because he's 
been it, it's a yeah, male bird that's been moving around and when you've just thought he's got found a territory and he's stuck to that territory, then the next year he moves somewhere else. So even though he's been really nest bound, as it were, and we just have, we've been going to the cliffs and not finding a nest, but, um, and then he's moved in the next year to somewhere else. So uh, he's already a nine year old bird, but he did start breeding last year, which was really exciting to see his nest and also see a chick on the nest. It was actually a ledge more than a pothole because it was on a sandstone cliff which is unusual for them um, and yeah so but really easy to see the chick um, next to next to the adults on the nest which was really great news oh that's fantastic that's brilliant okay well I'll, we'll we'll share we'll share that as well right i think to uh to finish off then i always ask the same question to finish off i'm just conscious of time and letting you get on with the rest of your day as well um if, i always because we get these wonderful you know ecologists like yourself on if you've got one piece of advice, or it doesn't have to be one, you can give two or three if you want. One piece of advice, though, to a budding bearded vulture monitor or raptor, raptor inf- bird of prey enthusiast, what, what would it be with you, from your experience? Sure. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's fantastic work. And just being with these raptors and in the various diverse habitats that they occur in, it's, it's a really fantastic job. And if you're an enthusiast, then obviously... It's, it's the right thing. But if you're in it for the money, it's definitely, definitely not the right thing. <laughs> You've got to be passionate about what you're doing to, to be involved in, in this sort of work and be really dedicated because it's it sounds fantastic and glamorous. But yeah, I mean, we've spoken about slogging for hours, carrying lots of equipment and sitting for hours waiting for birds to get caught. It's there's definitely really tough days. So you've got to be dedicated and you've got to be really enthusiastic about about it um but it, it's really rewarding so you can knowing you can make a difference and certainly for an endangered species working towards trying to change uh the population decline is is definitely a rewarding experience but also maybe just to caution against uh people are always keen to do tracking or you know all those kind of things or climb up to nests and activities that really impact the population but i think we need to be quite sure that of the information we want and why we want it before we do do engage in those activities but just because there is obviously an impact on the population especially mm. for critically endangered species so as long as the reasons are sound and can be justified then, then that's great Fantastic. absolutely brilliant good answer right okay i won't keep you any longer sonia thank you very much for your time and um, chatting Ooh. to us on the podcast it's uh, really appreciate it it's brilliant Oh, my pleasure. Thanks very much.